All right, hello and welcome to the DIY Recording Equipment Podcast. Today I am here with Duncan Gray, a real-life electronics engineer who has graciously agreed to answer our most pressing questions about audio electronics that we were afraid to ask. So welcome, Duncan, and thanks a lot. Hey, Peterson. Glad to be here. I, I love teaching and helping and, and learning while teaching. Awesome. Um, Duncan is an engineer and audio enthusiast who uh, has spent some time at DigiDesign uh, as well as running open mic nights and doing all that kind of audio stuff that uh, we're probably all familiar with. Um, is there anything else that, about your background that you feel like uh, you'd like to share before we get on with the questions? Yeah, I got hooked because I blew up somebody's TV amplifier back in the 70s, and I didn't know why I broke it. So that's what launched me into being a double E. Awesome. That's, um, beyond that's that, cool. I tried to make money at music, and my synth at DigiDesign was very, very fun. Uh-huh. But I'm not an old-timer in the design phase like the Meitners and the folks at Rain and, sure. and all them guys. Okay. Um, I was very fortunate to work there, but like I say, I love audio just as much as any DIYer, and I'm I'm in search of how to make the perfect circuit. Awesome, cool. Yeah, I think that is such a common story, and something that people who who've broken something should take heart from is that that's really where the real real fun starts. You know, like, and the real learning is when you break something. Yeah. So, all right, cool. Well, let's let's just jump in. I think we had. 50 questions or something. Um, we are certainly not going to get to all of them today, but we're going to we're going to try, and then um, we're probably going to do uh, we're certainly going to do um, at least another hour of this, um, focusing on more of the troubleshooting and safety questions that you guys had. Um, but let's start with the very first question from Matt from Texas. What do the different amplifier classes mean? Why is class A supposed to be desirable? This is a great question. You see that everywhere on marketing materials. Class A, discrete. Um, what does that all mean? Right. Well, it actually comes way back in the 20s from when they were doing RF amplifiers using tubes. Um, of course, that's all they had back then. Mm-hmm. And when they started worrying about power, um, they started moving out of what they then called Class A. Class A conducts the sine wave for all 360 degrees of the sine wave. It never turns off. It stays always linear, but Mm -hmm. it sucks a whole lot of power out of the power supply and out of the tube. It really overheats that tube, transistor. Tube versus transistor, in this case, doesn't make a difference. So they came up with Class B, and they actually literally ran these poor things for only one half of the RF sine wave, mm-hmm. you know, you got an AM radio station at, let's say, a megahertz, and they take just the top half of that uh, uh, one megahertz signal and then just let it turn off the other half. All the harmonics get filtered out by later circuits. So you move into the audio world, mm-hmm. and when we make a Class A amplifier, that is exactly the same. We have a really broadband instead of a carrier, and it carries the the whole signal on that one transistor from the top of the voltage to the bottom of the voltage. Okay. Um, class B, um, we never actually do in audio 
if you ever take a look at it, you'll see a class AB mm-hmm. uh, amplifier out there. Because what you have to do is you have to turn off the top transistor while you're turning on the bottom transistor. And that is the, the foundation of why a class A amplifier will always, always be easier to get to low distortion than a class AB. Okay. So that's about all you use in the audio. There's class C, which is just a little teeny tip of the top. Class D, which is, is now being used. It's fully on or fully off, no linear operation. And mm-hmm. beyond that, I've seen class H uh, as far as uh, what's used in power supplies. Okay. So it, this is this is all kind of new to me. So, so basically you're taking... Um, what what the only one of those that really makes any sense to me intuitively is is class A, and I suppose that's because you would just assume that the transistor is or tube is is amplifying the entire signal. So what you're saying is to kind of be more power efficient and and things like this, you're cutting the signal in half and saying, okay, this transistor you amplify the positive swing, and this transistor you amplify the negative. Is that that's, that's it exactly. Yeah, remember that uh, the Class A folks are usually the the super expensive amplifiers. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And it's partly because of the power supply, partly because you have to really beef up the transistor. I I forget whether it's 2 to 1 or 4 to 1, but that's the difference in the amount of power that any single transistor has to handle to deliver the given wattage of this power amplifier. It's, it's a big dollar savings because... Uh, Twice the power in the transistor is more than twice the price for the transistor. So okay. you really want to save power in each transistor. So that's why they went to class AB way back in the 50s. Okay. And and does any of this point to a reason um, why class A is is supposed to be so desirable for audio? Yeah. It's all about not having to turn off and turn on at just the right time. Okay. Um, as transistors age, that turn-on voltage changes. As temperature changes, the turn-on voltage changes. Threshold mm. in the, the equations for the, the base current. And so if you don't ever have to mind who's turning on and who's turning off, you don't have, it's called crossover distortion, in, in going from top on, bottom off to the other way around. It's just this one transistor, 24-7 turned on, that, that doesn't exhibit crossover distortion. That's the, the long and short of it. Great. Uh, next question is from QMP. Um, do some 51X modules use both the 24-volt and 16-volt rails? And if so, does this count as two modules to the draw on a 51X power supply? What is a good way to test the total draw of modules in a 51X rack? Okay. A bunch of questions all in one. Um, I'll start off with the last one. What's the best way to test? Um, I don't know, but I know that in all other rack systems that I've ever used, you can buy extender cards, and they usually have in their power supplies these little monitor points so you can put an ammeter in it. Okay. Um, I'd say go get one of those or, or get the DIY community to start making them. Um, that's how I test to see what's going on. But the first answer is, you know, I don't, memorize much of anything. I always go mm-hmm. to the book. I okay. pull out the schematic, I do the research and find out what they draw, what uh, what lines they're trying to draw from, run the numbers and see how much power you're taking. 
Okay. Don't just do it by module count. I've got a one module equivalent, a two module equivalent. Right. By the time you get five modules, ten modules in a rack, the little well, this one's only point seven five, and that's when one point counts as one point one module. You mm-hmm. may blow your budget. You just have to calculate it out. Yep. Okay. Great. Um, next one is from Zach. How do I go about calculating a power supply needed for DIY tube gear? Or how to calculate what's needed for a power supply in general? Yeah, that has one long answer and one short answer. I'll start with the short answer. Okay. You're going to have um, some kind of resulting number from the design of your amp. And this doesn't matter whether it's a tube or transistor. Mm-hmm. Current that guy's going to draw when he's driving hard out to the speakers or in the idle state. Okay. Use that number and um, it's a, the, one of the simplest calculations. Power equals the voltage of the power supply times the current that's going to be drawn. Mm-hmm. And it's the DC current, you know, at the end of the day that's going out to drive the speakers. Right. That's okay. the simple answer. Mm-hmm. The long answer is that if you don't know what the, the amplifier is going to draw off the supply, you've got to pull out your LT spice and start simulating to figure out what it's going to do. Right. And I suppose for, for those of us who, who are kind of building but um, don't have LT spice, which is a great tool for model, um, modeling circuits um, or an amateur or something, it's always better to just take what you think the, the current draw might be and double it or triple it and use that to calculate what you need for your, your power transformer or something. Because um, that's the great thing about DIY is you can just overbuild on your power supply and that kind of thing. Stuff that um, manufacturers really need to keep a close eye on for costs. Um, you know, if it's a couple extra bucks for a bigger power transformer, that's, that's not going to break the budget for the project. That's a, a really good point, Peterson. Um, I've always had to live close to the budget because right. I'm doing it for money. But yeah, man, um, belt and suspenders, uh, double it up, triple right. it up, not a problem. Yeah, exactly. What we're really talking about in choosing a power supply is mostly the, the power transformer and how much current and what voltage it's going to uh, reflect into the secondary. So if you know, for example, that um, you're building an API preamp and it runs on plus minus, minus um, 15 volts and you, you figure, okay, maybe I need 100 MA for this preamp. To get the right rating for the transformer, you just multiply the voltage by that power, and that's that's uh, that's it. So it's like you said, Duncan, one of the simplest yeah. calculations. You'll yeah, need twelve to do. volts times one hundred milliamps, and you get to one point two watts. Mm-hmm. Um, something to watch out for, though, is that because these are on rectifiers, the hundred milliamps, you probably want to double that because the super high surge. Um, on each of those things as it charges up the capacitor in the full-wave rectifier. Okay. A good rule of thumb is that, that you should start at double the current rating of the secondary. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, okay, well, let's move on to some circuit talk. Um, the first question about circuits is from Jonas, who asks, what are the differences between LC and RC filters? Uh, what's the theory behind how they work, and what can I achieve with one or the other, and what are their typical typical applications? Okay, 
this um, kind of starts at a high level. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's all about differential equations and what they do. Okay. Um, before we go there, let's, let's just clarify LC and RC. What does that mean? To me, that means cola and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Royal Crown. I haven't yeah, heard yeah. that one in years, man. Yeah. Okay. LC means L, which is the symbol for inductor, and C, which is the symbol for capacitor. Okay. And RC is resistor and capacitor without an inductor. Okay. And these are primarily used for filtering, high-pass and low-pass filters, right? High-pass, low-pass, band reject and band pass, all of the above. EQs, um, shelves, anything you're making is going to have these fundamental types in them. Okay, cool. All right, now let's now let's go. Okay. So... Um, Maybe some of the folks out there have heard these equations. Um, uh, v equals L D I D T. It's a differential equation for what an inductor does. Okay. And there's an equal uh, but reflected opposite in current versus voltage for the capacitor. I equals C dV over DT. Okay, just let that float by. Okay. <laughs> so good, so good, what happens good. is that an inductor is like a, a big chunk of iron, a mass. Mm-hmm. A capacitor is like a spring. Okay. And so think of, of what you do with your car. The mass of the car bounces on the, the, uh, the spring. Okay, the so shock. If you, put an in, if you put, okay, the shock absorber is like a resistor okay. that or. dampens that, that bouncing. Okay. And these, these, these are exactly the same differential equations for springs, masses, and shock absorbers as for capacitors, uh, inductors, and resistors, respectively. Oh, cool. As above, then below. All right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So if you use an inductor and a capacitor, you can get uh, bounciness, uh, uh, an overshoot, a ringing. You can get mm. a filter that has a, a nice pump to it, uh, an amplify, amplification of voltage. Um, if you just use a resistor and a capacitor, you can't get uh, uh, a band pass filter. All you can hope for is a low pass or a high pass. Okay. So that's what happens when you have nothing but passes. And I'll put the little tag on the end that if you use an op amp, you can convert the differential equations around and use a nothing but capacitor resistor circuit to get the equivalent of an inductor. Um, it's now you're into full up college <laughs> math kind of stuff. Right. Okay. And so that's why you can use an op amp to make a circuit that has exactly the same characteristics as what an LC passive filter would have done. Okay. So, okay. So here I, here I come, here comes the noob trying to make sense of this. Um, so in, in both of these filters, LC and RC, it, it seems like we basically have a voltage divider. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so we have two components, two resistive components in series, and, and the voltage in the middle of them is some uh, function of, of their values. Is that, is that right? So if we just have two resistors, we have a very simple equation for the voltage drop um, caused by the, <laughs> the voltage divider. Um, yeah. But what happens when you replace one of those with a capacitor is that capacitors are kind of like, um, you could think of them as a frequency 
um, dependent resistor. Am I right? Yep. So that's how we get filtering. And I guess what I'm not really clear on yet, uh, I don't know much about inductors. How, how does an inductor behave differently from just a plain old resistor? Um, it's actually the same as a capacitor. If you use nothing but, here's the third kind that, that, that we use all the time, LR, no capacitor in it, you also can't get ringing out of it. Okay. It, it's, a free, once again, a frequency-dependent resistor, the inductor. Okay. The capacitor has lower, lower impedance at higher frequency, where the inductor has higher impedance at higher frequency. Okay. Okay. Now, the thing is that you kind of have to take a leap of faith when you put the inductor and capacitor. Um, it, it is just like that resistor divider. Resistors have no variance versus frequency. So mm -hmm. no matter what frequency you pick, you can have the same divide-by ratio, R2 over R1 plus R2. Okay. When you put the capacitor and inductor in series, what happens is at some frequencies, the resonant frequency, energy is stored between the inductor and the capacitor. Mm. And so it starts to build up and, and grow and grow. And it is really literally just like the, the, when your shock absorbers go bad. Mm -hmm. Think about it. You know, you, you may have done this. You right. can coordinate your hand pushing on the hood to get that guy to go way up and down in, yeah. in space. Okay. And that's what we're, we call the resonant frequency. There you go. Cool. All right. So, like, like um, with Poltex, how we talk about their their resonance—that's an inductor-based equalizer. Um, and with guitar pickups, we'll often talk about the different types of guitar pickups. What's their resonant frequency? Because yeah. um, a guitar pickup is is basically a well, an LRC uh, filter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. So the the pickup now is more like a transformer okay. and so its job is actually to, to transform the motion of the string at a whole broad range of frequencies into mm -hmm. the voltage that comes out the pickup right right what right. happens is that you, having designed quite a few transformers and a couple a few pickups uh-huh really don't want to get that resonance too bad up at the high end and that's usually where you get it right because there is always a little capacitor when you wind the transformer. It's called parasitic capacitance between each of the wires in the, in the winding. Mm -hmm. That capacitance resonates with the inductance of the um, pickup that you just wound, and it gives you a hump at the high frequency. Right. Okay. The real magic is in the shape of that hump and the way you wind it, subtly changing all the phase relationships at the high end, and that's what makes the difference between a really smooth, uh, pickup versus a muddy pickup versus a, a hot, sharp pickup. All that stuff is because of those. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Yet another topic we could talk all day about. Um, yeah. But, dang, we have more awesome questions to get to. Um, okay, here's another one from QMP. Um, what happens to the Q, or bandwidth, um, in a swinging input EQ topology? How could one explain how that affects the coloration slash sound slash summing of the EQ bands? I'm curious about swinging input EQ in general. Um, okay, me too. Like, can we start yeah. with what is a swinging input EQ and 
um, also what is Q? What is bandwidth in an EQ? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let me see. To start off with Q, that is how wide the band is. If you have a one kilohertz bandpass filter, um, um, you, you can see the graph in a lot of the pictures done on, on modern all digital things. You pick mm-hmm. up the little handles and you can see Q go up and down. Right. Q being a really sharp sp- spike is high Q. Okay. And a really broad uh, width to that bandpass filter is low Q. Gotcha. Uh huh. Now, in the swinging input, they just get that to happen because, um, oh, I forget which API EQ I, I cracked open to take a look at their swinging input. But the L and C that resonate against each other, the Q is determined by a resistor that you put in series with it. Mm, okay. So. Think about it. The the slower the uh, um, uh, the damper is, the the shock absorber on your car, okay, and mushier that thing is, the the less you'll be able to get it to jump up and down when you push on the hood. Right. Okay. And the lower the resistance you have, which is equivalent to a shock absorber that's really loose, mm-hmm. the more you can get it to go up and down, but only at one frequency. Gotcha. So the okay. resistance in series with this L and C that you made in your LC filter, the resistance sets the Q. Gotcha. It's just that simple. Okay. Wow. So that's, that's great that we did this one right after the, the previous question. Um, so the R is the shocks. It's the damping. It's the Q. All the same thing. Yes. Awesome. So let's see, what, what, what else is contained in this question here? Um, how could one explain that affects the coloration sound summing of the EQ bands? Um, right. Okay. Um, one of the holy grails of EQ designers is to make it so that, um, if you think of a graphic EQ, you want to make it so that if you turn up one band and up its neighbor, that in the in-between, you don't have a big dip between them. Uh-huh. And that's because you'll start building notch filters where you didn't really intend to just because you put two uh, adjacent bands up in game. Okay, sure. And so there's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is that if you have just like a three-band EQ, which is what some of these these lovely old APIs were, um, uh, even five-band, you do want to have a little bit more, I don't know, ability to color the thing. And you do want to have a little bit of a, a hole in between the adjacent bands. Mm. It's all about what sounds good and sounds right and okay. getting control. And um, I, I, I incorrectly posted in my response, I thought when I looked at it that, that this was a uh, bandwidth invariant filter. Okay. Um, meaning that the Q stayed the same no matter what the the EQ gain uh, booster cut was. Oh, set oh okay. Yeah. But I was wrong. The, those are those swinging inputs make it so that the more boost you put in, the higher the Q is. So you're going to build that notch in between the adjacent bands when you do boost two boosts next to each other, or mm-hmm. two cuts will leave a hump between the two of them. Right. And that's what the coloration comes from. I see. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these these toys, this gear that's the most fun to play with is the stuff that reacts to you while you're doing something. Um, 
it's it doesn't react totally linearly. You boost here, something else happens there, and it kind of becomes this whole interactive, playful system, which is what's fun about some of these circuits where um, you have other stuff. Everything's interrelated. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes it for my money so that a really good recording engineer is truly an artist in their own right. Right. They're playing a whole different instrument. They know their EQs. They just know them cold. Right. And they know how to get the sound that you want. The joke that I, I hear is uh, um, the the EQ guy says, let me boost it at a kilohertz. And, and the musician says, no, no, no. I want it to sound more lavender. <laughs> right. And the engineer knows what he means. Right. That's a good engineer. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. Quick circuit question. What's the simplest way to make a noise electronically from Johnny Long Arms? Yeah, that one's really easy. Okay. You know, many DIY boards, you get something like 12 or 15 volts on a, uh, a 16, uh, sorry, it's about a 6-volt Xena diode. Mm-hmm. with a 10K ohm resistor in series, not much current going through the Zener diode, uh-huh. operate it down close to where it's cutting off and, and starting to go back down the knee and not be a Zener anymore. Okay. Through it. And just take that and, and you know, DC block it straight into an op amp, and you got a pretty noisy noise source there. A Zener diode is really, really noisy compared to a resistor. That's, that's the best way I know. Okay, cool. Okay, here's one from Greg Fine. Well, if no question is too dumb to ask, can you help me understand ground a little better? Why do parts of the circuit, in a guitar pedal, for example, go to ground? Yeah. So when I was a sophomore in college, I just couldn't wrap my head around what this current flow stuff was all about. Mm-hmm. And, and someone um, turned me on by saying, okay, think of a hose. Back in your house, I, I had a well in my house. There's this pump, mm-hmm. and it makes pressure. Okay. And it pushes water through the hose. And the water comes out the far end of the hose and goes to the, the ground, the earth under right. your feet. Uh-huh. And then it goes back to the reservoir, and then it comes, uh, or, or it actually, in this case, seeps underground to go back into my well right. to get pumped back around. You have to have the circle. Interesting. Now, uh-huh. In electricity, it is the same. The electrons are like the water. The battery is like the pump. So you need to get this flow of electrons through the hoses, the wires. Okay. But instead of letting it kind of fritter out uh, through the air and, and, and through the, the earth, the dirt, mm-hmm. you have to bring a wire specifically back. Now, when it comes to figuring out what voltage you care about, you want to have that ground return have the lowest possible resistance. Right. Because um, if it doesn't, then you're going to have the, the return from a signal that went out to some speakers over there put a little extra voltage because of the ground return wise resistance that affects your mic. That's classic ground loop stuff. You've okay. probably heard of ground loops. Sure. Sure. So, so that's what, where grounding starts. So okay. Specifically for the pedal, Pedal has nothing to do, of course, with speakers or microphones. Right. But it is still all about putting a, a you have to put a little dry voltage out to those uh, pedal switches. Mm-hmm. All they do is open and close to let current flow or not flow. Right. So there's the feed that goes out to the switch, and there has to be the return back from the switch that is ground. That's okay. why a pedal needs ground. 
let's let's look at the next question. It's also about grounding. Um, this one is from Gear or Gear. Um, how should I ground and shield inside the box? Preamp compressor EQ. This is one of those one sentence questions that's like, uh, what's the meaning of life? But great wars, many deaths. Right. <laughs> um, let's take a look at it though. Anyway. Yeah. Um, okay. So inside the the box that you're building. Mm-hmm. Um, there's fundamentally three things you have to protect yourself with good grounding, protect from. Mm-hmm. First is those ground loops that I just okay. mentioned. And so that's the whole pin one grounding thing. Um, on the XLR mic, if you got a, a, an RCA, God bless you, mm-hmm. or a quarter-inch uh, unbalanced, then the ground, you, you're going to want to figure out your grounding philosophy. Right. So, I'll I'll kind of leave that one grounding philosophy for the minute. Okay. But so the the next two things that you need to protect from one is the local AM FM radio stations. That was another one of the questions. Uh-huh. And that's a a brute force shielding thing. You just okay. wrap it in a balloon that doesn't let the electromagnetic waves in. Okay. And then the second is that you have to protect yourself from yourself when you make uh, a uh, um a system, and, and I worked on 11 rack very briefly. A mm-hmm. bunch of really great guys did, did the work. There's 160 dB of gain when it's wide open wow. between the input mic and the output to monitor or headphone out. Sure, wow. You have to protect that mic input from the output um, even for what radiates through the air. And, and and so there you're putting up little ground shield walls between the circuit of the input and the circuit of the output. I see. Same is true in most power amps. Okay. Wrap uh, transformers in new metal, right. put them to ground. Mm-hmm. And then you take all the circuit boards to ground. And I personally like to take it to a really good chassis ground. And I make them uh, using an aluminum chassis. They're much lower resistance than steel. Okay, um, so that's why we why we need to shield. Um, Gear wants to know how do I do it inside the box. Yeah, and the next question uh, I'll just throw in there because it's it's basically the same question. Uh, it's from Anthony Pratt. What is star grounding, and what's the best way to reduce hum? He says in a tube amplifier, I'm just going to take tube out and say amplifier. Okay, I'll I'll reveal one of my snobberies. Uh-huh. Um, I really, really hate point-to-point wiring. Oh. It forces you into needing star grounds. It's okay. the only way out of the problem. Mm. Every single wire that you make is a little antenna. No matter how short, no matter where it goes from or to, it's a little antenna. Okay. When you do things with the printed circuit board, um, don't know how many folks have heard this, but intuitively you can understand. Ground plane. Mm-hmm. You make this big sheet and the ability to be an antenna just goes away. Okay. And so you take all of the circuits and tag it to the ground plane. That's the equivalent of that shield box that you put it inside of. Right. So the star ground is a way to make it so that when you got things pretty open, uh, you have this one common point for ground. Remember how I mentioned earlier that if you have one wire that brings back both the speaker and the microphone, the current of the speaker, upsets the voltage of the ground and makes the microphone signal now ride on a little bit of the speaker signal. Okay. Star grounding undoes that. So you bring the return of the microphone 
to a single star point right. and the return of the speaker to a single star point and the power supply to the single star point, right. power supply ground. And now the microphone just can't hear anything that's happening from the speaker. Right. Likewise, the output stage of the tubes versus the input stage of the tubes, you don't want those guys to have a sneak gain path right. to these ground return wires. Okay. So the star point is the way to fix that, and, and there's lots of guidance out there on how to, how to make a star point. Like I say, I'm a, I'm, I like doing it to chassis, mm-hmm. um, but it's just as good to put it to some, um, some other tag point on one of those uh, point-to-point wiring uh, right. buses. Yeah, and I, and I think the takeaway, I mean, we've obviously got some great info here. I thought the well analogy is brilliant, but one of the key takeaways for me concerning ground is that everybody struggles with it. If you are confused about ground or you're having ground issues with your projects, you are not alone. Do not feel bad. And I mean, the the professional audio engineering community still wages war over, over grounding issues. It's not like it's an established thing that you just don't get. <laughs> it's um, There are certainly things to learn about it. There are better and worse ways to do it. But just recognize that you are in a field that is is growing and is still hotly contested, and it's it's just like recording. It, there are not easy answers that you're just not getting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, be patient. Mm-hmm. The only thing I'll add to that is a lot of people fight hum, mm-hmm. um, believing that it's ground and it's really just about the power supply, mm-hmm. not minding the negative versus positive, keeping the the ground. Had a good potential compared to the hum. Put a cap from plus to ground, minus to ground, right. and to minus sometimes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's leave ground for the moment and go on to coloration. Um, first coloration related question is from Rocco. Is there really a difference with new old stock and Chinese transistors in terms of sound color, or is that just a myth? So we're talking yeah. about the, kind of this uh, idea, is it fetishism or is it fact that people are looking for transistors that were made 40 years ago instead of just buying the new ones from Mouser? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'll start off with a little bit of a rant. There's a little China bashing that's going on, but there's mm-hmm. actually some really good work being done there. I've, I've seen some speakers that were contract designed out in China that were just brilliant, brilliant monitor speakers. Wow. Likewise, the semiconductors that I, I get, um, some of the best companies out there, Central Semi mm-hmm. and uh, Linear, um, I forget the, the second half of the name, okay. Linear Systems, are making beautiful, brilliant transistors. And I think their foundries are all in China. Okay. Great. So then, then the next part, new old stock versus old, old stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, new old stock, truly old versus brand new off the line. Right. Things age, and the physics of aging is different from the physics of building it new, trying to make it sound old. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So there is a difference in coloration. It's all about the exact shape of the gain versus bias point, um, the exact shape of frequency response, all that stuff very subtly changes and now you're into true magic where all you can do is pick one and listen and see what you you prefer yeah okay so you're saying there there is some physics to back up this idea of new old stock versus versus new okay 
Yeah. Um, Next one from Ramon. How do you know if a device such as a mixer or a preamp needs recapping? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I just did a uh, 1964 Silvertone. Pardon? So first of all, sorry, what is recapping? Oh, yeah. Um, The thing that is the weakest link for aging is capacitors. Okay. The capacitors that do DC blocking between stages Mm -hmm. and the capacitors in the power supplies, all of them. Okay. So what happens is generally there's two kinds of aging. One is that the capacitor just plain loses value. That happens to aluminum electrolytics. Okay. They go from 1,000 microfarads to 100 microfarads. It's a 10 to 1 change over the decades. Wow. Okay. And so you're just going to get building hum, hum, growing, growing. So that's, that's a no-brainer. That's an easy one. Mm-hmm. The more subtle one is, is that when some of the classes of capacitors, the, the paper capacitors, oil-filled capacitors from way back in the day, yeah, right. and uh, then, once again, aluminum electrolytics, mm-hmm. they have a breakdown mechanism that lets noise get through the electrolyte from one mm-hmm. electrode to the other inside the capacitor. Okay. That turns into either just plain old hiss or a really obnoxious popcorn noise. Okay. Okay. And so so how many, I'm sorry, uh, what span of time are are we talking about? Like if you buy a mixer from the 90s, does it need to be recapped? Um, How how long are we talking for these things to break down? It's it's 10 years before you have to start to worry about it at all, unless this poor thing has lived its life outside. If you're digging, you know, festivals and stuff, and Mm -hmm. it's getting to 110, 120, Okay. Inside the box, it's going to age the capacitors much faster. Okay, great. So at and that then, point, you five to ten years. Okay, and so moving on to the the question, how do you know? Uh, say I get a piece of gear that's on the borderline, and maybe it's ten, fifteen years old, um, and I'm not super familiar with how it's supposed to sound uh, to compare it. How do I know if I need to recap it or not? You got the flutter noise on any particular channel. Usually you hear a channel, channel start to go bad because it's got some fluttery noise. Okay. Um, also, just pull out your test equipment and check for background hiss to see if you're out of spec. Okay. Um, and, sorry, I interrupted you. had a story about a, a Silvertone amp or something? Yeah, I, I, I uh, inherited a Silvertone amp that had played with the likes of Patsy Cline and Roy Clark. Oh, wow. A beautiful old thing, 20 watts, exactly what a jazz player wants to have. Yeah, wow. And it, was, it was super noisy, it, it, uh, and it had a lot of power supply hum. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some of that old gear just was born with the hum, and it's a part of the charm, but it was just too much. So I had to recap that. And uh, all of a sudden, I've got all kinds of free space inside the box, because capacitor sizes have gone sure. down over the decades. <laughs> right, right. Cool. And it... It cleared up some of the hum? Oh, the hum is all gone now. I oh, went wow. overboard. I, I went and, and did 10x the size of some of the power supply caps. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So it can make a huge difference. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Moving on to a question from Tobias. What do you think about discrete electronic components like Purcell's op amps um, as opposed to a low noise chip op amp like the 2406 from Texas Instruments. Um, yeah. Is that just a myth or maybe insignificant to use such expensive components? So what Tobias is asking about um, is 
discrete uh, op amps such as those from API, Fred Forsell, John Hardy, um, which are kind of fetishized and used in, used in more expensive, more coveted gear, or um, the very modern IC um, op amps or other kinds of integrated circuits um, that are supposed to be lower noise, perhaps even higher performance than some of their older discrete counterparts. Sure. That's, that's a, uh, a really great subject on what precision and coloration and purity are all about. Mm-hmm. And uh, Peterson, you were saying that you had visited uh, some friends who had done some studies on, on what people call clean. And ironically, it was, it was a little bit upside down. Right. What I know is that the kind of distortion that comes from those super high gain, really ultra clean op amps comes because, yeah, across the linear region, it's a perfectly straight line. That mm-hmm. doesn't color it, but when it hits the rail, it's got a really sharp line of cutoff. Right. Whereas these discrete op-amps that are the, the APIs and uh, Fresnels and, and everything, they have um, usually fewer transistors, lower gain, so when they start to hit the rail, they have this smooth, uh, smooth corner. Right. Uh-huh. The other thing they have is some different phase characteristics. They don't respond from DC to daylight. They're only a mere 100 kilohertz. Right. And so you'll hear some phase uh, effects up in the 15 kilohertz range. Right. And all those colorations make us feel like it's more pure sounding. Um, and it, it's a valid thing. It's it, it's not magic. It's not uh, fairy dust. It's for mm-hmm. real. You go mm-hmm. do blind studies and you find people saying, that one sounds more pure, that right. has their distortion, right? Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it absolutely has to do um, with the, the quality of the distortion too, uh, which is a very subjective, subjective thing that on paper, you just, you'll never know what the, dis- what the character of the distortion is. And um, I did take a trip to Montreal recently and got to uh, see my friend, Robert Eric Gaskell's, uh, some of his, research data. He's doing research on um, op amps and their characteristics and how they affect um, our perception of them. And certainly would love to interview him in the future uh, for a podcast to talk all about op amps. But what really, in just the short time that I was looking at his research, I saw was that all of our, a lot of our conceptions about discrete versus integrated circuits need to go out the window. We have these ideas that the discrete stuff is colored and noisy and, you know, but has some kind of mojo. And that's not true across the board. The modern API op amps and the the John Hardy 990C, for example, are badass op amps from any perspective. They they have a lot of driving power. They can be really clean, really low um, total harmonic distortion. Even compared with um, the mono, the monolithic stuff, so um, the idea, the kind of this dichotomy between discrete and colored and clean and monolithic is just is a story that's not true. Um, for example, the 990C has a lower noise, lower total harmonic distortion than kind of the trusty old 5534 monolithic op amp. Um, so. First of all, let's let's kind of throw that dichotomy out the window. Also, the way that the story doesn't really play out, as you're told, is that monolithics are harsh. 
the streets are, you know, warm or whatever. Um, and he showed me he had done this really interesting test in which he'd taken the total harmon- the harmonic um, distortion on a sample and raised it up to, I think, 2% as opposed to, you know, 0.1 or whatever it would normally be. So you could really hear the character of the distortion. And I did some blind listening through it. And, um, for example, the 5534 that they had used just sounded beautiful. Like, if I could master through a 5534 at 2% harmonic distortion, I might do it in some cases. It sounded really nice. Um, But also, so did the API and John Hardy. It was just, you just were like, aha, that's that distortion that somehow doesn't sound like distortion. It sounds like, like, like you're saying, Duncan, it makes it sound cleaner. And, you know, it's so... uh, anti-intuitive that somehow distortion sounds less distorted than the really clean op amps. And, and you're exactly right on. And it bears out when you do the spectrum analysis. When you have those higher distortion op amps, you bet you can see little spectral lines for a pure sine wave. Mm-hmm. Driving hard, the spectral lines are actually pulled down a little bit at the higher harmonics when you have those very particular kinds of distortion. Mm-hmm. And it's depend, like you said, exactly on which distortion type you've got. Right. Yeah. And I, and I suppose, so in answer to your question, um, Tobias, um, I think from my point of view, it's time to start talking more about this op amp versus that op amp and taking them on their own merits rather than talking about discrete versus monolithic. Um, I think that conversation is much less fruitful than just comparing apples to apples. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they don't put on the data sheet, this one has a sweet sound, that one has a warm sound, that one has a sharp sound. They don't put those on the data sheet. No, that's but our job. You just have to come to learn about what, you're, what you got on the circuit in front of you. Right. And that's the beauty of it. Um, it made me really excited to hear um, Eric's samples and, and realize um, how different each op amp is. And, and that's our business. That's our that's our playground, you know, is, is to play around with that stuff. There absolutely is difference in character between op amps. Yeah. yeah. There was another question, um, Peterson. Um, I forget whose it was. Maybe you had the sheet in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, on um, using a clean front end and then putting an effect to emulate a classic preamp versus use the preamp and forever have that coloration in it. Let's yeah. Let's um. Let's jump to that one. Um, so this is this one's from Bang. Super, yeah. Super beginner. He says, um, I've seen preamps and mixers on the quote unquote essentials list, but what does a preamp do that I can't just do in post after he records with his mic? Um, and then sub question: Why are preamps so expensive? Um, and then he has a question about a sound card, but let's leave it at, at this preamp question. What does it do that you can't do in post? So I'll mention a couple of names, the, uh, the whole DigiDesign line and they, the effects that they have, and uh, Universal Audio, another brilliant company doing these things. Universal started with analog amplifiers way back in the day, and, and then they went digital. Yeah, Their absolutely. business is making things sound like those beautiful old 1177s and any mm-hmm. that you want to pick from any of the great masters. Yeah, 1176. Transformers and everything. Mm-hmm. 
And here's the insider information. Double-blind testing shows that uh, uh, engineering post-production work is indistinguishable from recording up front with the real thing. Okay. Get so now, a really good effect. So do you mean that the digital is indistinguishable from the analog or that um, compressing after is indistinguishable from compressing before tape? Okay. This is, uh, I'll say, preamp coloration, not okay. compressors. The compressor okay. technology does have some, some big differences. Right. But that preamp coloration is indistinguishable. Okay. Uh, real thing versus post-production digital. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, I might be able to buy that in terms of coloration. But when we're talking about a preamp, and you know, coloration is the big, the big marketing thing. And that's kind of why in this kind of current world of gear sluts and everything that we, we have, coloration gets, gets a, a lot of conversation. But a preamp is also a device for capturing a signal. It's not just a, a dirt box, you know. So there, in that sense, there is something you have to get on the front end. The preamp, a preamp can be better or worse at transferring a signal um, from the microphone. Yeah. So it's kind of like, to use a visual analogy, if you take a photo um, with a certain resolution, you can't go into Photoshop and make it a higher resolution. You cannot add information. You can't unpixelate an image after it's been captured. And so that's what you, you can't do in post, is you can't get more transient information. You can't get um, the clearer capture of, of what was coming through the microphone than you had. Oh, wow. <laughs> What's that? Um, so I live in a house with a, a few artists, and there is a play rehearsal going on <laughs> in my living room. Very cool. Yeah, um, so it's fun. But yeah, if you hear some screams, don't be alarmed. I do live in, in West Philadelphia, but it's not what you think. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so I'm sorry. So the, the coloration from these preamps, and, and, and you're absolutely right, you can't get more resolution out than, than you first captured. Another part of it is that all those preamps are giving you a more forgiving front end than the harsh front end of the super high accuracy preamp. Sure. Right. Well, and, and there's something to be said for a super high accuracy preamp in many, many settings that you, that you don't. You do get more information and you will get more information than you'll get from, for example, the built-in preamp on your, your interface or something. There is absolutely yeah. something to be said for that. So... Um, Great. So does that take us... Okay, there was one more really great question about coloration. Um, this is from Jay Smith. How close do you think it is possible for DIYers to come to replicating the sounds of vintage processors? The short answer is it's completely impossible because mm -hmm. we don't have old stuff. But the flip side is make a beautiful sound today with what you've got and you've got a beautiful sound. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm totally down with, let's try to make, uh, uh, any given preamp model sound that you want totally. Right. 
And you bet, it's it's a, a very fun project. To me, it's the difference between being a classical musician and an improvisational musician. The right. classical musician wants to make Beethoven sound the way Beethoven wanted it to be, versus... Well, um, maybe they might not be playing it in, you know, mean temperament or whatever. On a, yeah. They might be using a piano instead of a harpsichord, that kind of thing. I suppose yeah. Beethoven was on a piano, but... Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're right. So right. the, the, the other thing to do is to say, okay, I've got a new color because I've got a different transformer that I wound myself. Right. And, and you, you know, either lucked out or by design got a really cool transformer. Right. Whatever it is, uh, differential input stage. Um, yeah. And, and then Jay Smith also asks, what components are most important to achieving this? Um, yeah. Number one is the transistor that you use. Try, try, try to get the same 2N number, 2N or whatever it was that was in the original one. Okay. By far, that's more than anything else. Really? Um, You think more than the transformers or the... Well, the transformer is is a big part of it, but that's kind of the easy one because there's so many people out there who make the this and the that and the other that that plug directly in. Right. Okay. I see what you're saying. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, to, to kind of wrap up, how close can we get? I think like you're saying, since there are people doing brilliant work, cloning transformers, uh, we can get darn close. Um, yeah. and I think the other thing to acknowledge is that one 1073 might be as different from another 1073 as your modern one is from quote unquote, the original. Um, and that, that was part of the magic because they were using um, resistors with much uh, worse tolerance and all, all components with very different tolerances from what we're using now. Um, you know, one channel on the desk could be different from the next channel um, and that kind of thing. So that's something to acknowledge. It's not like there's somebody that keeps the 1073 in a pressure sealed vault in France that every clone is supposed to sound like. Um, we're talking about a range, uh, you know, kind of a fam- of family resemblances less than this is the 1073 sound that Rupert Neve dictated. It's really more of, a, I think, capturing the spirit, capturing the mojo of it. And also, like you said, doing something new. I mean, those designs are are brilliant and they sound great, but you know, using them as a springboard, using standing on the shoulders of giants rather than just trying to um, to wear their clothes <laughs> to push the analogy maybe too far. Uh, yeah, is is where the fun is to me. Uh, don't seek the master; seek what the master sought. Right. And and you, what you mentioned about the variability. Let me add that at DigiDesign, we were looking for point oh oh one dB variance on any single run of equipment. Uh huh. Um, we'd get to point oh one. Okay. And that's just freakish compared to thirty years ago when they ah they're happy with one dB. That's right. Close enough. Right. Yeah, and the frequency response varying by twenty percent at twenty kilohertz. All right. Well, I think we have time for one more question. Um. This is a really interesting one from Kevin Smith. Uh, He says, I work at Motu, and I'm stuck on the assembly side of building and want to get over to the engineering side because I have so many great ideas for products and I'm extremely involved in the DIY community blogs, and I live on gear sluts, and I've gotten great suggestions for projects. 
My work is filled with every cap, resistor, diode, IC, ADDA chip that we've ever used. What would you suggest for a beginner DIYer in designing a project? Is there a quote-unquote go-to book that you could suggest for designing analog circuitry? And what should I be studying to get my foot in the door in engineering? That's, that's one of my favorite subjects. I, I enjoy bringing people up the mountain. Mm-hmm. And um, So first off, let me say, can I send you my resume? Motu's got some stuff going on there. I like <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, okay. So I see two classes of leadership in the engineering side of the house as compared to the production size. One class of leadership says, well, I'm not going to let them in unless they've got their paperwork. They've got to have the PhD, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. I watch out for those kind of places because they can usually be fooled. I look for a place where they say, wow, that guy knows his shit. Right. And some of the best engineers I know don't have double E degrees. Right. Okay. But what they do have is they do know differential equations, integral calculus, frequency response, right. Fourier transfer, the whole nine yards. So mm-hmm. step number one is math. You've got to get your chops on, on the basics of differential equations. Mm-hmm. And uh, that stuff's for free out on the web. Right. everywhere. The next part is physics and knowing um, a little bit about how electric fields work is really important. There's a, a website, it's uh, a distributed website called Hyperphysics. Okay. That's my go-to location when I need to find out something because cool. when I don't know something, they can take me from total ignorance to high-end expert, mm-hmm. Hyperphysics. Cool. Those, that's, that's what I'd I'd recommend physics and uh, uh, math. Once you know those, you can solve all those problems. And algebra is a big part of it. And trigonometry is a big part of it. All that mm-hmm. stuff that you might have hated back in school and said, I'll never use this. Right. I, I, I was doing um, uh, integral calculus right before you called because of the project I'm working on here at work. And I've been at it for 30 years. It's not right. just in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not an I'm not an EE. Um, I'm I'm more of a, an enthusiast, and I know that's one of your pet peeves. Saying I'm not this, I'm not that. Um, yeah. But uh, and but I think the gist is just do it, and that sounds like a cheesy marketing slogan, but that's that's kind of the truth. I mean, if if you look at the people like George Massenburg or like. Um, Joe Meek, or the, these kind of like uh, really creative people, they didn't need anybody to come along and, and show them how to do it. They just got into it and make a lot of mistakes, you know, fail over and over and over again as cheaply, as quickly as you can. And the gatekeepers that, that used to be there in kind of the old industry before the internet, they're not there anymore. Um, so I would say, Kevin... Design a pedal. Design something simple and breadboard it and just make something that sounds cool. Um, and I think Duncan's right to emphasize, you know, do your training, do your due diligence and, and learn the math and become a badass ninja engineer. But also get out your breadboard and your guitar or whatever and just make something that sounds funky or cool to you and it's not going to kill anyone and, and put it on the internet. Make it open source Start talking about the circuit, get the community involved, and um, get to be kind of a known 
quantity in the world um, and fail. Get out there and fail. Do, do some, make something shitty. Make something uh, that's interesting but totally terribly executed and get some eyes on it and um, just get, get muddy. Get in the sandbox, you know. My, my first design was a DIY design mm-hmm. on to make a frequency doubler. Okay. And, and I knew that if you took the bottom half of a sine wave and flip it up to the top, you get twice as many ripples going. So that's a frequency doubler. Okay, sure. <laughs> so I put a full wave rectifier between the output of that TV amplifier and the speaker, and it blew up the output. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't give up. Right. Yeah. That's how I got started. Yeah, right. you've got you, you to swim into the waters, and then you have to learn what it takes to, to swim with the sharks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, okay, great. Well, this is this has been awesome. Um, we we have a lot more questions to get to um, about troubleshooting and safety um, and some other stuff that we will get to next time uh, that Duncan and I can get together. So stay tuned for part two. Uh, everything you wanted to know about audio electronics troubleshooting and safety. Um, thank you so much, Duncan. Um, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Peterson. It was really enjoyable, and I love this audio stuff. It's an art form of its own.